Hey, take out your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from a seat under close by in front of you. And I want to, I just want to thank you so much for your prayers these past couple of weeks. Uh, Christina and I, we talk to every morning as we just have our study, our devotion time together. And just so, so blessed. We could, we know that you were praying. There's, there is no other explanation for two weeks ago, being in surgery and being back now and just feeling that it's all glory to God. And thank you for your prayers. I, uh, I, there, there just really isn't. So thank you for your prayers. Don't stop. <laughs> Keep them coming, but praise the Lord. Mark chapter one, you know, it's uh, just kind of setting up and as getting ready for this kind of going back. It's been a long time since we've been in Mark. It goes back even to the week before we celebrated the resurrection of the Lord on Easter, the last time that we were in Mark, and then uh, just a few weeks that I, you know, I've been gone. It's feel, felt like six months. It's only been a couple weeks, but um, as we get back into this, I think it's important that we see again and remember where we left off last time. Jesus calling the first of his four disciples, Andrew and Peter, James and John, fishermen. They were fishing along the, sea, it's the side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, And Jesus said this simple thing to them. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We talked of that when we looked at it together last time, that he didn't call them because they had something great to bring to the table. He didn't say, man, these four are perfect because of what they have in the past, what they've done in the past. As a matter of fact, we talked about the fact that they were kind of cast outs, if you would, from the rest. They weren't following another rabbi because they didn't excel like the other students did. They were back doing the family business because, because they weren't successful in the, in the world's religious eyes. But Jesus saw them and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Your job is to follow me. And when we think of that, following Jesus, it really requires trust. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you stay with me, you come after me. Wherever I go, you follow me. Wherever I send you, you go. And that requires trust. And over the last couple of weeks, again, the, this theme has been coming back in, in Christina's and my morning devotion over and over and over and over again. Trust the Lord and wait on the Lord. Trust the Lord and wait on the Lord. And as he calls these initial four disciples, he says, follow me. What he's saying is, trust me. And when we do that, as we will see with these men as we walk through this, and as we know of those of us who have given our lives like that to the Lord to follow after him fully, our lives are never the same. They're never the same. They're not at all what we thought it would be. It's way better. It's it's totally different. And, and we see that right away as this, they first step into this. It tells us as we pick up our, our, uh, the dialogue here the, or the story as Mark lays it out for us, verse 21, they, that being Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, now the four as they've joined him, went to Capernaum. Capernaum is a city that is right there. It's a, it was a fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee. We'll find out as we continue this morning that it's actually where Peter's home was. And this would become the base of operations, as you would, for Jesus' ministry in the Galilee region. So they go into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, on on the Sabbath day, they entered into the synagogue, and he began to teach. They, all of those that were present in hearing him, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not 
as the scribes. Now, Jesus on the Sabbath would go where all of the, the, the good Jewish people would go, those that loved the Lord, loved, loved God. They would go to the synagogue. Understand the synagogue was not a miniature version of the temple. This, the, the, the temple is in Jerusalem. It was the place where the priests were, the high priest. It was where the sacrifices were made. And it was the only lawful place where the sacrificial system was to be taking place. That it was not given out to the individual towns. You had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for that. The synagogue had its origin during the time of the Babylonian captivity. When the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were taken off into captivity. The word synagogue literally means a gathering place. And the kind of the rule was, the way it was set up, is wherever there were 10 or more Jewish men of 12 years old or older, you could start a synagogue, a place where you could gather together. Again, not to offer sacrifices, not to do that type of thing, but a place to gather together to read the scripture, to talk about the scripture. It would be taught on, it would be expounded. It was a place where they would worship. It would be a, pl a place of prayer. And so we see the synagogues now in all of these, these villages and was the custom as they traveled along to these places, rabbis, scribes, other teachers would be invited when they would come in from out of town, they would be invited to teach. We see that take place here. Jesus already other gospel accounts have this, like as if you read Matthew, and it's not in Matthew's not in chronological order, but Matthew actually has the Sermon on the Mount take place before this. But Jesus had already started to be known in the area. And when he comes now into Capernaum, he's asked by one of the leaders of the synagogue to come in to teach, to explain, to instruct from the scriptures. Now, we're going to see when we get to chapter 5, we're going to be introduced to one of these leaders. His name is Jarius. And I don't know if Jarius is the one who actually ex extended the invitation to Jesus. I, I, I believe that he's probably present and listening and hearing and, and among those that are amazed as Jesus teaches. And it tells us that they're amazed because Jesus' teaching was different than what they were accustomed to. They were, diff they were different than the scribes and the other teachers had. And he tells us why. Because Jesus taught with authority. That word, Greek word there, exousia, it means absolute power. There was something, not only in the manner of which Jesus spoke, but in the words that he spoke that had power. They were amazed. They, were, they, they could embrace this. And, and we're going to see as we continue to read, they're like, this new teaching, this is new to us. Before we get into that, though, I think it's important that we understand where the power is for you and I. First of all, we need to understand, guys, the power is in the word of God. Hebrews tells us that the word of God, this isn't just a book like every other book. This isn't just the bestseller of all time. The author of Hebrews tells us that this is the living word of God. It is alive. It is active. It is different than any other book. Why? Because it is the word of God. Literally God breathed. We are holding in our hands the word of the almighty, all-powerful creator God to us. Revealing himself to us. Revealing his plan, his desires, his heart to us. And there is power in that. And can I tell you that that is why the word of God is under so much attack today and always has been? It has been brought into question 
the, the inerrancy of God's word. We believe that wholly and completely at Calvary Chapel, that the word of God, as it was originally written and recorded, was without error, period. No errors. It can't have errors because it comes directly from God, and he's perfect. He can't make a mistake. But I'll tell you, that's under great attack today. A couple of years ago, I was sent out an email to many pastors within surprise, and I wanted to get us together and pray. And I, I said, hey, since we are all in agreement on these certain things, what would stop us to get together and pray? And one of those was that we believe in the inerrancy of God. And I got an email back from a pastor here in surprise that said, if I don't believe that in the inerrancy of God, if I don't believe that every word is, is true in the Bible, can, I, I can't be a part of your club? Well, first of all, it's not a club. <laughs> but second of all, my, my heart breaks because I'm like, if, if you're a pastor and you don't believe that all of this is, is true, how can, what do you stand on? I'm, I, I'm here to tell you that if, if I didn't believe that everything in here is true, that we didn't need everything that is in here, guys, I, I couldn't do this. I could not sit up in front of you and, and, and do what God has allowed and called me to do. I believe every word in here is true. I believe that everything in the word of God, that I believe in the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Scripture, that everything that we need is in here. Everything we need is in here. Oh, and oh by the way, we need everything that's in here. <laughs> Go, both parts. I also believe in the primacy of Scripture, that it is first and foremost and always what we go to. So much, again, in, in the world around us. You don't have to look far to find a place that says, oh, yeah, we believe in the Bible. They'll read a couple of verses, and before you know, they're off into pop, pop culture and all sorts of other kind of stuff. And, and uh, well, we started there, but, oh, well, we're all, no, the primacy of the Scripture, the centrality, this, this is where it is, this, because this is where the power is. So much of what is wrong in the world today is because the word of God has been stripped of its power because it's been stripped of those things. Listen to what God says about his word in Isaiah 55. He says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Again, the living word of God, as it is sent out, as it is proclaimed, as it is read, as it is absorbed, God said it won't return to him empty. It will accomplish what he sent it out to do. Now, Jesus, when he's in Capernaum, what he would have done on this day, and we, we see an instance of this in Luke's account when he, when he went to Nazareth in a similar situation, he would open up the scroll and they would go to the section that was to be read that day and they would read through that section of the scripture and then they would teach on that. They would expound on that. They would explain that. And that's no doubt what took place here with Jesus. But understand, Jesus was looking at the Old Testament scriptures then, perhaps a prophet, maybe Isaiah. Today, we have so much more. We have the full revelation that God desires to give to us. The author of Hebrews begins his letter, Hebrews chapter 1, this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, note, has spoken to us in his Son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. We have what those were just seeing, the power of the living word of God, that is Jesus. John tells us in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Hear Jesus now expounding on this in a way they'd never heard before, and it blew their minds. We don't have recorded for us the sermon that he gave that day, the, the message that he shared, but we do have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't read that in a while, I encourage you to do that as homework this week. One thing that you will see throughout that, and you'll see throughout the Gospels as you read it, if you're sensitive to it, Jesus makes this statement. You have heard it said, such and such, but I say to you, I say to you, I say to you. And that is what was so different than what the scribes were saying, the other teachers. You see, what would happen with the other scribes, the other teachers, they would take out the scroll, they would read it, they'd close it up, and then they would say, you know, Rabbi Hillel said this about this particular passage of Scripture. And then Rabbi so-and-so had this to say about this particular Scripture. And then Rabbi Gamaliel had this to say about what Rabbi Hillel said. This, But before you know it, they're so far away from the Scripture and all of these man-made ideas and opinions and all of this stuff, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And at the end of it, they're like, what do I take away from that? But Jesus said, I say this to you. And with the authority that was there, it radically rocked their worlds. Again, we don't have it recorded for us, but we just flip back with me a few pages. Let's go back into Matthew 7. Let's look at how Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, he says, as he's completing, after he's been, he's, much of these times now, again, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you, as he says this at the end, therefore everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. It had a foundation of the, in the word of God. Jesus said, what I've said to you, if you receive it and you make it a part of your life, you act on it, you have this foundation. He says, however, everyone who hears these words of mine does, and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus said, one of the things he didn't say, please hear this, is if you follow him and if you give your life to him and you listen to his words and you act on them, that your whole life's gonna be perfect. Never gonna have a problem. Just gonna be... Sunshine and ice cream cones every day. No, as a matter of fact, the same storms come. And they're not tiny storms. They're like hurricane force storms, enough to knock down a house. But if you have that foundation, we stand firm and we have that and we're prepared, fully equipped for whatever would come our way. And notice the reaction of the people. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
for he was teaching as them having authority and not as their scribes. Same words, same reaction that we see in Mark. That word amazed, to be astounded, to be overwhelmed, to basically have your mind totally blown. They're hearing these things. We taught Pastor John last week, if you were here, great, great exposition of that, of that text that we had in the rich young ruler last week. And remember, Jesus said, I say to you, after the rich young ruler walked away upset, depressed, because he, he was very rich, Jesus said again there, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, again, amazed. Who can enter? Who can go? Who can enter the kingdom? How can you be saved? Totally blown away. And again, Jesus said, this, this, the answer, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As we, as we look at, at this and even more, Jesus, when he says these things, amaze. You know what totally amazes me? This week, as I was kind of looking through those, those sayings of Jesus where he says, I say to you, I say to you. And when Jesus begins a statement by truly, truly, that's like, hey, heads up, underline this, highlight it, whatever you do. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I tell you what, that statement amazes me. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you put your faith and your trust in me completely, if you abide in me, you go where I send you, you do what I tell you to do, you will do things as I did. And he says even greater things. Now, that's not speaking of quality. That's speaking of quantity. As, as the body of Christ around the world now in, in, in doing this and in, in, in responding to this, guys, that amazes me. And we see that as we continue to read. You read through the gospel accounts, but then you get into Acts. As Jesus ascends to heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit. And now these men, filled with the Holy Spirit, out being used by God in unbelievable ways. One in particular, Acts chapter 3, a man who's been lame since birth, sitting there begging alms. He was taken every day to beg. He's over 40 years old has never taken a step in his life, lame since birth, and he's begging for money. And he's, he's thinking what he needs is, is some money just to get him through the rest of the day. What he fails to realize is he's settling for, for the good instead of receiving what is best because there's something way more, bigger available to him. And Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Says he took him by the hand. Let, had him stand up. And then not only did he walk, he's dancing into the temple. The Lord is calling us to have faith. Stepping out in faith. As they did, he used them. It, it tells us twice in the scriptures that Jesus marveled. Now it's, it's, 
It's interesting, to us, none of us are surprised at that as we hear this. You know, if, if we see these things that Jesus is doing, we hear these things to be amazed. But probably all of us would be hard-pressed to say, you know, I could do something that could amaze Jesus. But the Bible actually records twice where it tells us that Jesus marveled. If you're still in Matthew chapter 7, just go down to Matthew chapter 8. It tells us of the centurion who came to Jesus and asked if, he, if, if Jesus would heal his servant. And Jesus said, I will come. And the, and the centurion says, you don't need to come. I understand authority. All you need to do is say the word, and I know that he'll be healed. And it says this in verse 10 of chapter 8, Matthew. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, <laughs> I have not sound, found such great faith in anyone in Israel. This man's faith amazed Jesus. It marveled him. The other time that that word is used is in Mark 6, 6. We'll get to that in a little bit in a few more chapters. But Jesus marveled at the lack of faith of others who had seen and witnessed so much, yet still had so little faith. We see, again, and you don't need to turn there. You can look it up later. But Acts chapter 3, as this continues to unfold and it gets into chapter 4, it tells us that the religious leaders, when they've heard of this man who'd been healed, and they're, and they're like, what are we going to do? They get, they get Peter and John, and they bring him before him and say, what is going on? What are you doing? And it tells us in chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. The power of the name of Jesus. And then he goes to the power of the word of God. He says in verse 11, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Standing there boldly in front of these religious leaders, and then it says this in verse 13, Acts chapter 4, now as they, the religious leaders, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were fishermen. They knew that. They weren't the, the top of the, the rabbinical class. They were fishermen. It says, they were amazed when they saw the confidence and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Again, there's the key. Being with Jesus, the word of God, filling us, empowering us. And when we do that, when we believe, when we step out in faith as they did, trusting and relying on the, the all-powerful, all-sufficient word of God, no telling what God can do. Now, I understand. It's easy to be like the scribes. It's easy to kind of go with the flow a little bit, to kind of, to kind of point in other directions, because none of us want to step out like that and, 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 and be rejected. But here, and this is so important, would you turn with me real quickly to 2 Timothy? I realize we're doing a little bit of a Bible study this morning, but this is important. 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, notice beginning in verse 16. All scripture, how much of it? All, All of it. 
not portions, not most, not some. All scripture is inspired by God, as I mentioned earlier. Literally God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Notice, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What God calls us to do He empowers us and he equips us. And Paul tells us here that that equipping comes not only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, but through the power of the living word of God, equipping us for every good work. And then he goes on and he challenges us, challenges Timothy. Notice verse two, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction the word of God. Share it, teach it, preach it, share it with others. Understanding, verse 3 says, for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. There will be those that are going to hear but don't want to receive. There are going to be those who are going to try to deflect and say, well, what about this? And can't we mix in this? And and what about this teaching or this philosophy? Notice verse 5, but you. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Every one of us in here today, as born-again believers, have a ministry. Every one of us, God has called and equipped and is sending us. And we need to fulfill that ministry. And as Paul tells us here, guys, that equipping comes through the word of God as we study it as we meditate on it. Again, I gave this invitation earlier. If you haven't done so already, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, take one and from a seat in front of you. If you don't own one, take it home with you after the service. You need to have a copy of God's word. And as believers, we need to be in God's word every day. We need to be reading it. We need to be studying it. We need to be meditating on it. We need to be marinating in it. Because that, again, is where the power is. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes, he said, they was asked, how do you defend the word of God against all of the criticism, against everything that comes? He goes, defend the word of God. That's not my job. How do you, how do you, how do you defend a ravenous lion? You don't. You just let it out of the cage. Let it defend itself. And that's what we need to simply do with the word of God. We don't need to apologize for it, defend it. Just let it out of the cage. But we need to know it, guys. We need to know the word of God. And it goes beyond just just reading it. How many of you have been to New York City? A lot? Yeah, a lot of people. I've been to New York City. I had a two-hour layover there once. (laughs) Actually, on my way to Israel. Never got out of the airport. How many of you who have been to New York City would agree with me that I didn't really experience New York City? My concern, though, is how many of us just have a layover in God's word. That we come on a Sunday and we spend 45 minutes or we have our devotional time in the morning and we just read through whatever it is in our, in our little checklist and we just touch and then we go. Without truly experiencing without truly marinating in it, without truly allowing God's word to become part of us. You see, 
probably all of us could, could quote or, or, or point to it. Jesus even saying on the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all of these other things will be added unto you. All of the things that we worry about, all of the things that we stress about. He's saying, don't worry about those things. Don't stress about that. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Everything else will be added. How many of us can quote that, but how many of us truly live that? Where we don't worry about these different things and the different stuff that's going on, but we can truly say that I am focused on kingdom things. We, we, we all know the verse. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But how many of us can truly say that's what I do when I'm weary? Or do I just pop on the TV or jump onto this YouTube channel or whatever else? How about the really big heavy ones? Like we can all probably say we know that somewhere in the Bible it says that Jesus said my grace is sufficient. But if we truly absorb that and we live that and we experience it, we know that that comes at the end of ourselves. When we get to that point, as Paul did, where he's crying out to God and he's saying, take this away from me, remove this from me, this pain, this suffering, this difficulty, this trial. And Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient. And in that, we learn to trust him. And in that, we learn to take one more step to wait on the Lord. This is so important because in that is where we grow. In that is where our faith is strengthened. But it goes beyond that. It's not just for us. It is when we then share the word of God, there is power in that because we've lived it. We know it. We believe it. It's said of George Whitfield at one particular time he was having a, a crusade or, or several nights in a row where he was teaching in this one particular city. And there was a man that, that had gone a few nights in a row that was not a believer. And one of his friends who was also not a believer knows that he had gone two or three nights in a row to this and that he was planning on going again that night. And he said, why are you going back again tonight? You don't believe anything that guy says. And his response was, yeah, but he does. And that intrigues me. When we own it, when we experience it, when it is a part of us and we share it, people might not immediately embrace it, but they're going to know you believe it. They're going to know that, that it is part of you and it will intrigue them. If you're still in 2 Timothy, turn back to chapter 2 there, just perhaps a page back. Notice Paul also in exhorting Timothy in this in chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent. That, that means apply maximum effort to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Read it. Study it. Meditate it, know it, own it, marinate it, make it yours, believe it. Avoid, notice, worldly and empty chatter for it leads to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. When we know and absorb and the word of God is ours and when we're sharing it, we don't get caught up in the other stuff. We don't need to. What we have in the living word of God is life. Life. 
All other stuff is death. Gangrene, slow spreading death. The author of Hebrews, as we already pointed out, said that again, now in this time, God has spoken to us in his son. And as you read through the rest of chapter one, it speaks of the supremacy of Jesus, how he is greater than than everything. And he says now in the beginning of chapter two, as he says this, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. My challenge to you and to I, believers, who love the word of God and embrace this, let us not drift away from it. Drifting is a subtle thing. To make sure that we are anchored to the word of God, that we're in it every day, that we're praying as we go through it. Lord, speak to me, change me, mold me, use this in me. When we do that, and when we allow God to use us in that, sharing that, we need to expect that things are gonna happen. Back in Mark's gospel, stuff happens. When Jesus speaking with this authority, notice verse 23, it says, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Here we see, as Jesus is speaking with the authority that he has as God, we see that there's this man, demon-possessed man, where the demon cries out to Jesus there. My question is this. I wonder how many synagogue services this man sat through, totally unfazed, because there was no power. And here we see the power of the living word of God, and he can't sit still. And he cries out. Notice, first of all, he knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows everything about him. He knows that he's a man, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, but he also knows that he's fully God, the Holy One of God. We'll see later as as another group of demons are encountered Jesus in chapter five where they cry out, the son of the living God. They know exactly who he is, fully man, yes, fully God, but also the all-powerful God. They say, what, did you come to destroy us? They know that he has all power over them. But notice, it's not just who he is that they know. They know what mission Jesus is on. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. They know that that's his mission, but they also know that their mission is completely contrary to that. Their mission is to steal, kill, and to destroy. Those two can't mix together, and they know that. Look at his question. What business do we have with each other? The answer, none. They know it. Jesus knows it. The problem is how many Christians don't get it, still don't know it. The word of God is clear. There is to be no compromise. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Again, not calling us out of ministry. No, we have to be ministering to that world. But we can't mix darkness with light. We can't compromise in order to to make a message quote-unquote relevant. And that's what has happened so much with with the, the teaching today and what is going on today. And that's why there's no power. How many, how many churches, how many Christians have made the compromise? They believe. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There is zero gray area. The enemy wants to convince us that there's a lot of gray area. And so many have bought into it. And I believe that that is why we look at the, our country that we live in today, and the, the statistics still hold it up, that somewhere between 60 and 70% still say, yeah, I believe in Jesus how do you describe, how can you explain the, the horrible condition that our country is in morally, moral-wise without saying that so many believe that there's a lot of gray area in there? We have our God box, and then we have our life box. The enemies know it. We need to embrace that as well. No compromise. Again, if we do, if we compromise, it takes the power away. One last thing before we move on from here, because this, this is an important thing. Notice that this demon knew exactly who Jesus was, and he knew exactly what Jesus' mission was, yet he was still lost. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to know why he came. One of the differences between the fallen angels and us as mankind is that we are given an opportunity to receive grace. When the angels fell, when the angels rebelled against God, their destiny was set, an an eternity in hell. When we rebelled against God, we are set on that same path. But God, praise the Lord. That is the truth of the gospel, that God extends us grace. If we will simply repent, turn from our sinful ways, receive the free gift of salvation, be born again, we have our path changed. And we have eternal life. But it's not enough just to know who he is. You must repent. You must turn. You must receive the free gift. If you've never done that, I beg you today, don't leave here without doing that. Respond to the Holy Spirit moving on your heart today. We see that the the power of Jesus as he casts out this demon. By the way, I love how Jesus handles it. He doesn't go into some long ritual or anything. He just basically says, be quiet, get out. And the demon has no choice. When it says it cries out with a loud voice, it wasn't arguing with Jesus. It was, it was tormented itself. It had no choice as it leaves this man. But the power of Jesus, even over the spiritual realm, with authority. If you're here today and you're struggling with anything, any bondage to any type of sin, whether, whether maybe you're in bondage to drugs or alcohol or pornography or, or any other thing, and you've tried and you've tried to, to break away from that, but you, you, have, you have not been able to, you've been, you haven't had success in that today. I'm here to tell you today, in the name of Jesus Christ, you can have victory. Today. 
not a 10-step program, one step. And I will encourage you today, don't leave here under that same bondage. At the end of our service, we're going to have pastors, elders, prayer team members up front here would love to pray with you and take that to the foot of the cross and leave it there today. You can walk out of here totally free, as this man did. Amen. Amen. It's the power of God. It's the power in the name of Jesus. As we, as we close, verse 29, it tells us after this amazing service, can you imagine? And this, nothing like this has happened before in Capernaum. Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they went into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. The whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. You know, this might just be some simple thing to pass over, but I think this is pretty profound. It tells us that after, after church was over, Simon, Andrew, James, and John took Jesus home with them. Take Jesus home with you after church today. Don't, don't leave him here. He wants so desperately to go home with you. You have problems at home? Maybe some of you have big problems at home. Jesus wants to take care of those. Maybe, if, maybe, maybe just have some little problems at home. Jesus wants to take care of those. Take him home with you. Take him to work with you tomorrow. Take him to school with you this week. He so wants to be involved in everything. <laughs> I love this too. This is one of those things. And if you're a note taker, circle this word. It says in verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately, circle that, they spoke to Jesus about her. Notice they didn't say, hey, where's the Tylenol? <laughs> She's got a fever. She didn't, they didn't say, hey, would somebody go get a cold compress? says immediately they went to Jesus. Not saying don't take Tylenol if you have a headache. Go to Jesus first. You might be surprised. In a half hour, you don't need the Tylenol. He wants to be involved in everything. From casting out a demon, from breaking a chain today, if you're in bondage to something, he wants to break that today, involved right down to the littlest thing that you might think. Take it to him. If it's on your heart, it's on his heart. He wants to be involved in it. No matter how big, no matter how little, no matter how busy you might think he is. I, I love this. It tells us after sundown, which by the way, being the good Jewish people that they were, it's Sabbath time. And Sabbath goes from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. As soon as three stars are visible in the sky, they blow the shofar from the, from the synagogue and everybody goes, okay, Sabbath is over. Now we can carry all of our sick people to Jesus. I can almost see them standing there at their doors, just waiting. And they hear the shofar and it says, going to Jesus. Now Jesus is going to address that 
Sabbath legalism when we get to chapter 3, but that, that's why they waited until then. But notice, they all came. And sometimes I think we can feel like, oh, Jesus is way too busy for me to bother him with this. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm almighty, all-powerful God. Bring that to me. And when he touches, when he heals, when he moves, I love this too. Immediately it tells us she gets up and she waits on them. She serves. God, what do you want me to do? God wants to touch you. God wants to heal you. God wants to free you today. But he also wants to use you. Taking that message. Nobody can argue with your testimony. They can argue creation, evolution. They can argue Jonah. They can argue all of these things all they want. They can't argue with your changed life. And as we share that, and again, as we share the living word of God, the all-powerful word of God, because we believe it, because we own it, because we live it, they can't argue that. Last, word, last verse, and we're done, Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only reasonable response as he touches and changes and transforms our lives is to be used by him to touch others. Again, as we stand now, let's stand, let's close in a word of prayer and, and we sing one more song of worship together. As we do this, I want to invite any of you today who are here that, that are, maybe, maybe you're, you're here and you're, you don't, you haven't given your life to the Lord yet and you know that and the Holy Spirit is being, being gracious to you now and revealing that truth to you. Please don't leave here without at least coming up here and talking to one of our, our prayer members up front here. We want to talk to you, want to pray with you. If you're struggling with an area of bondage in your life, please, again, don't leave here without coming up. Let, let us pray with you. Let us take that to the foot of the cross. You can walk out of here free today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you again for who you are. God Almighty. We thank you, Lord, for your love, the love that you displayed that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you for the desire that you have to continue to grow us and mold us and shape us more into your image. And we thank you for your all-powerful, all-sufficient word that if we simply allow it to, will transform us, will equip us for every good work that you have for us to do. Lord, I pray that you would stir within us a passion for your word. Stir within us a desire to go deeper and deeper into your word. Lord, strengthen our faith as we experience your word. Have your way in us. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.